if you uh, if you have your uh, Bible, you can uh, get it open with me, and uh, if you would, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 1 this evening, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we uh, are talking and speaking and preaching about tonight, uh, who, what, and uh, and the why, so to speak, of uh, the issue of worship. And uh, gets down to it, there are a lot of folks who... Uh, who go to church and go to church on Sunday. A lot of folks. The question is, is when they get there, are they really worshiping the Lord? And uh, when they get there, are they really getting anything from the Lord? You know, uh, I've, I've been blessed already by the music and your participation in it and all the peewee patch and the patch of pirate kids participating in the service. It just avenues and aspects of that that uh, refreshes my spirit. Uh, one of it, one part of it, is that uh, we have another generation of young people that are coming up that around here. We're emphasizing the importance of God's word in their life, and uh, that always brings forth good fruit. And uh, I'd urge and encourage our parents of uh, the young people that. Uh, you back up what you hear the kids talking about, the memorization of the verses they do, and uh, if they can hide God's Word in their heart when they're young, uh, it'll probably stick with them for a long, long time. Many of the verses that I use in my preaching are verses that I learned when I was a young man in school, in Sunday school, and, and uh, Bible class, and so forth. So I, I know it's important, and I do believe that our young people are getting a good dose of it, so I hope that they hang on to that. And one thing that also does is uh, they get to know God's Word and understand it, and uh, it's not enough just to hear it read or hear somebody referring to it. It's important that we understand what it says. And one of the things it speaks about is uh, to know who you are worshiping. You know, just going to church and, and going through the motions is not enough. And we've for a week or so been referencing all the areas of uh, description of who God is. And tonight I want to move it just a bit from that, and I want to talk, talk to you briefly about what God has done. And uh, not only are and is He to be worshipped because who He is, but He's to be worshipped also for what He has done and for what he will do. First off, here in Genesis chapter 1, and begin uh, with just the first verse. We know it well, and sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. So be careful that you don't let that happen, because uh, the Bible does not set out to prove there is a God. It assumes there is a God. In the beginning, God. Who is this God? Well, it's the God we've talked about over the last uh, several weeks. One, he's, he's holy. And uh, two, is eternal. Why we sing the chorus in the Sunday morning service is to remind you that God is eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. But He's the real God. He's not a, he's not a fake God. He's not a God that's been made up as an idol. He is the real and the only real God there is. All the others are models or images of Him. And so consequently, in Genesis 1.1, it begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing is to understand, and this is not a minor matter, and it's too common in often people's discussions, is we just take for granted that he's the creator. But just think about what that means, that God created uh, everything that is, he created it. 
I mean, everything you can see, uh, he was the one who set it in motion by creation. When you go out tonight, you may not see the moon or the stars, but they're up there, and he created those. He created those. He created those. He created those. All of that he created. And the fact is, most people just don't think a whole bunch about that. And um, in our library downstairs, we have some, uh, uh, some videos uh, about the God of wonder and what he has done. I'd recommend to you that you get a copy of them and take it home and, and view it. Because in it, it talks about all the complexity of the creation that God has brought about. People who do not believe there is a God make this very straightforward statement. Obviously, um, I was born a skeptic. I mean, for the first whap on my backside when I came into this world, ever since then I've been a skeptic. I don't even know that I believe this, but there's enough pagans who say it that I'm almost going to believe it, that there are no two snowflakes alike. Now you think about that for a moment. How many piles of snow have you shoveled? Are you telling me that there, there's no two of these? And the people who made the statement in one of the curriculum, the book that I read, was in school years and years years ago. And even in there, they were not saved. They did not worship the true God. And they had no response at all about creationism. It wasn't even mentioned in the book. And yet, in the book, these brilliant-minded people said they had evidence enough by virtue of the number of snowflakes they had compared. And, oh, by the way, in this book, there were 1,700 or 800, and they had taken pictures of them. And they weren't a single one of those that were even similar to each other. Only they have the same configuration on the outside. But they had places where the lines went in a different direction, and they changed the angle. They were all different, 1,700. Now, look, if there were just 1,700 snowflakes that are different, you just think about that. How was it that God made that so that the snow falls from the heavens and crystallizes up in the air with liquid and it comes a snowflake to hit the earth and there are 1,700 different versions of it? Or take the pagans' word. There's no two of them alike. No two of them alike. So creation is not just some nice idea. If, in fact, creation is reality, as the Bible declares it to be, God created the heavens and the earth. It's to say, uh, you and I don't know anything. You'll forgive us, but we're ignorant when it comes to the complexity of the great creative work of God. If you just were to study biology and study about your ear, just your ear, don't forget your throat now, just your ear, just your ear, and you were to look into that thing as they cut the diagram in it and look at how this thing came about, uh, they say, they say, uh, oh, it evolved over the years. There have been pagans who look at it and said, I don't know how it got here, but it didn't evolve. Pagans, not scientists, Christians, and believers, and great scientists in the Christian faith. No, no, no. Pagans said, I don't know how it got here, but I know it didn't get here by evolving. Because this has some kind of structure to it that does not just evolve. I'd say to you, if you want to really understand the, the great creative work of God, if you uh, simply get you a book of uh, Christian scientists, and I'm not talking about the religion Christian science, I'm talking about Christians who happen to be scientists 
who have uh, studied it and uh, written books on it, and you sit down and you just read 25, 30 pages in an evening, and I submit to you it will probably be the best devotional reading you'll ever do in your life because you'll come away with a renewed appreciation for this flippant statement we often make. Oh, yeah, God created everything. But we don't really understand what a creative work he did to make it what it is. The psalmist said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He created us. And for all the fearfulness and the wonder we are, we owe it to our Creator. The fact that you can even talk is a creative work and genius of God. That you can hear. That you can smell. Everything that has to go in for you to be able to sing. There's so much about this body. That is absolutely phenomenal. It caught the attention of the Reader's Digest years ago. Years years and years ago, Reader's Digest did a whole series. I am Joe's heart. I am Joe's ear. I am Joe's tongue. I am Joe's head. I am his hair. Uh, And he went through all the organs of the body, and they even expanded it to a book that didn't all get printed. It was everything about Joe. And Joe was just a fictitious person that represented the whole of the human race. And amazing in this book, everything in it was unbelievable. They were Christians who read it, though it was written by pagans. They read it and, and marveled at it. Well, this has been the truth from Genesis 1-1 all along. But God people hadn't taken the time. Oh, forgive me, you're too busy. You've got, you got a life to make. And you didn't have time to understand what a creator we have. Because if you'd have taken the time and sat down with one of those books written by those good men that explains it in terminology that Christian people would deeply appreciate and take the scriptures to back up aspects of it, you would come away with marvel of the grace of God that he created us the way that he has. And I say to you, you ought not wait till you die and then get serious about how your body's put together. You ought to learn about it early. You ought to get you a book, and there's some in our library, and there's others that uh, you could pick up on that would uh, would stir your spirit, and it'll stir you to worship God when you realize what He's done in creation that's past your marvel and your mind. In this particular case, Genesis one one is just one of them, but let me take you to a few verses. We'll not ramble too long on these points, but they are important. Look if you would at Psalm thirty three, Psalm thirty three. And look down to verse number 6, and um, just take a moment to check them and uh, let the Scriptures speak for themselves. In Psalm 33 and verse number 6, the Bible says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. It's interesting, in uh, at the first verse of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the very first verse of the Bible, you meet the God who is to be worshipped. And the basis for that worship, which is, comes up through the whole of the Bible, especially in the Psalms, is that he's a creator. The creator. And I, I think it's important for you to remind yourself that he created everything that he did out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. And there wasn't anything there. There was nothing there. And this passage in Psalm 33 and 
Verse number 6 makes it clear. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He just spoke, and those came into being. And the same thing is true concerning the earth. And all was created work. Interesting, as somebody put it this way, he speaks in all the elements of the earth, the atmosphere, the water, and the land, they find their appointed places by his creative voice. At the sound of his voice, oaks, octopuses, ostriches, and orangutans all appear. He reaches into the dust He forms a perfect man, and then he breathes into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He created us. You're a created being, and God didn't create a bunch of junk. He created people, and the first ones he created were absolutely perfect. And what he says is that you and I ought to remember that. It ought to be amazing to us and recognizing God's mighty work in this thing of creation. And it should, uh, by its very nature, it ought, to, it ought to stir our spirits and inspire us to worship. Boy, when we think about him as creator and all that he did and all the complexity and the design that he worked out in all these things of creation, uh, you and I ought to be drawn to that like a magnet, metal to magnet. You ought to just, man, it ought to just push you. To want to bow in humility. It's uh, one of those kind of things that it's easy to forget. The greatness, the magnificence of the creative work of God. But that's not the only thing he did. The second thing is that he is not only creator, but he's sustainer. And uh, we don't think much about creation. We probably think less about his sustaining work of and the sustaining work, it's something to remember that uh, the God who deserves our honor, our praise, and our worship is uh, the one who created everything. And to top it off, he holds all of it together. He makes it work and keep on working. And the thing about that is there's no other truth about God that should humble us as much as this one, lest it would be his work in saving us. And uh, I'd say this... He is uh, everything that God has made, he's made that it depends upon him. Everything. You can sit here tonight and think that you're the captain of your ship. You think that if you can eat right and get enough exercise and you go by the doctor's orders, you'll live. God only knows how long you may live. And you sort of feel in charge. You know, you're the captain of your ship. You're the prince of the island. Let me let you in on a little secret that you better never forget. Your life, your life is in his hands. And all he has to do, he doesn't have to take your life. All he has to do is quit giving you life. That's how he's a sustainer. And I say to you, when arrogant men and men on this earth get so proud and so arrogant and they think they have arrived and they think they got all the answers and and they glory in their knowledge, what they seem to forget is that their life is in God's hands. And they'd never take another breath if it were not for the sustaining grace of God. And if you're here tonight... You may not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You may be religious as the the communion cups in a church. 
that you may have never really honestly repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you, your life hangs over hell like a string that's been used before would be holding you up. Jonathan Edwards was close, suspended over the hell fires, as it were, by a single strand. And it's the mercy of God that the strand holds. But that's how tenuous your life is and how mine is. We don't dare brag about how much time we have. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, the Bible says. Because you don't know what you've got. You may not be around tomorrow. And if you're not right with God, then God has been merciful to bring you to another service and give you another opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the creator of Genesis 1-1. John says so. John chapter 1 makes it clear. Jesus Christ is the creator. And therefore, he is the creator and he is the sustainer. Let me show you. Look, if you would, at Colossians chapter number 1. New Testament book. Paul wrote it. Wrote it to the church at Colossae. Chapter number 1 of Colossians. Look, if you would, down to verse number 12. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 12. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks, giving thanks unto the Father, which had made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Verse 14, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image or icon is the Greek word, icon, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created by him and for him. Now watch carefully. Verse 17, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The word consist is a, an interesting word. It's um, the Greek word that is placed here and from which we get our English word consist is a Greek word that means to stand together. Uh, it's also a, a word that uh, sets forth the idea of, of uh, something that has to be we would call it manipulated to keep it where it's been placed. It's uh, it's the same thing you and I have trouble with. If you've ever used um, if you've ever used um, uh, tape or masking tape, especially, I like duct tape. I just love duct tape. I think duct tape's the finest thing created since a fork. I mean, you can do all kinds of things. I have had show, you know, old shoes that I wear around the house, and they wear out in the bottoms, and you call a guy about half-soling the shoes, and they say, oh, sure. I say, how much would you charge to half-sole them? They'll say, oh, $35. I say, hey, I only paid 20 for them, you know, and he wants 35 to half-sole them? Forget it. i got enough duct tape in the garage. I can fix this problem. 
So I take it in the garage, turn it upside down, and start cutting them in different ways and laying them in different directions. I've got to sew about this thick now. It's all duct tape. I have another 20 years of shoes. You see, the point is that uh, this whole idea is you take the duct tape and you can put it on something, but the one thing you can't let it happen is don't let it get wet. Because if you get the underside where it's sticky wet, then the whole thing comes off. That's what this is saying. He created everything, and he makes it stick like tape. It won't come unglued. The moon is going to keep on shining. Now, all the scientists can tell you that it's burning out. They, they, they're trying to get everybody fired up, and in the next 20 years, uh, they're going to have people scared to death that the moon is going to burn up and fall out of the sky. You can take it from the Word of God that that moon that moon will be up there when all the scientists who are claiming it's going to burn out will be buried and rotted in a grave. That thing's going to hang on forever because God made it so and He sustains it. And forgive me, but no amount of men getting to the moon is going to change that. They can hit that moon with, a, with a, all their rockets and they can do all they want to, but I'll assure you, God's going to keep his moon shining and his stars. Oh, they fall and burn out, but that's, the, that's no problem because God's made so many of them that uh, I think he does it for our entertainment, frankly. Who hasn't been excited when you see a star falling? Sure, but we ought to remember God put them up there and he can take them down anytime he wants. But God is the sustainer. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sustainer in these things. And uh, I find it interesting that the Bible uh, emphasizes these things often. Look again, if you would, in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 104 and look down to verse number 27 and 28. Psalm 104 and verse 27, it says, These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, and verse 28, that thou givest them, they, them they gather, thou openest thine hand, and they are filled with good. What he's talking about is in verse 25, he's talking both in the sea and all things that creeping innumerable, most small and great beast. This verse is saying they depend upon the sustaining work of the Creator God that he will provide them what they need to eat. I find it interesting that the birds gather down at the Edinburgh um, storage bins when the season of harvest comes in. And if you're driving between here and uh, Interstate 65 South, and you look over to the Edinburgh storage stack, those guys fill up those bins down there with corn. And then when they run out of room in the big bins... They have this chute that runs this corn up in the, just up in a big section that's concrete down at the bottom, I understand. And they just start pouring this corn out in this big pile. And you can go down there, and as you pass through there, you look out there one day, and all of a sudden, here's a corn pile. And I'm talking about singular grains of corn piled so high that it would be higher than the top of the New Line Baptist Church's steeple. Higher than the steeple. Not just where it is, higher than the steeple. And they just keep piling on, and it just keeps sliding down and getting bigger at the base, and they just keep pouring the, the corn. They don't have anywhere else to put it, so they put it outside, and then after they think they've got about all they can put in there and they're not going to be buying anymore, they take and they wrap that thing and to keep as much water off of it as they can. 
And then a few days or weeks later, they the train backs in there and they start emptying that corn into those um, train cars to ship it, whatever it's going and wherever it's going. What's interesting about that is you ought to go down there when this thing is bringing the corn in and when they're taking it out. And if I've ever seen anything magnificent, I have seen this. There'll be thousands of pigeons, doves, and every other kind of animal that'll show up there and eat around the perimeter there. It's like a, it's like the Lord gave a good harvest, but much of it was to make sure He fed all the animals that are dependent upon grain. There they are. You just look around, and there were multitudes of them. I mean, they're just all over the place. And it reminds me of this verse, where it's simply stated and set forward. These wait all upon thee. Isn't that something? Isn't it amazing that the Lord takes care of those kind of things? And in, in, in this verse of Scripture says they do. I mean, you and I, just we, we just take it for granted. The bird, he's eating some grain and so forth. You, you missed the point. God has taken responsibility to sustain that animal. And he feeds him. But we're so used to it happening and being taken care of, we don't think anything about sustaining. But your body, to the degree that you've existed, is sustained and Mr. Bingham, I don't know if anybody around here is as old as you are in this building. Boy, he's really sustained you for over 90 years. And he's been gracious and good to you along the way. And it's always good to have you with us here at the church. And that's true about all of us. doesn't matter how old you are, but it's the sustaining goodness and grace of God that takes care of us. He, he brought you into this world, and he's sustaining you in the process. Quickly, let me take you to a third thing. He's not only creator, and he's not only sustainer, but uh, probably the thing that ought to usher us into an attitude of worship is the fact that he is also our Savior. Jesus Christ, from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, was the creator of the universe and all that in it is. And he is not only that, but by Galatians' statement in chapter number 1, he is also the sustainer, but he's also the Savior. Look at verse uh, number or chapter number four of the book of Romans. Romans chapter four, and look at verse number seventeen. Chapter four of Romans and verse number seventeen. Four seventeen. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickened the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. It's an interesting thing. This verse of Scripture talks about giving life or quickening the dead. Now, we know that happens on a physical sense. The Gospels tell about the times that Jesus Christ showed up when somebody had died and uh, he raised them from the dead. But this, in its context, is a spiritual dimension. It says a lot of things, and you need to get them all. One, it says uh, that the people in this room who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his resurrection and his present ministry of seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. People who have not believed on Christ and enjoyed those benefits and those blessings, those people are dead spiritually. Spiritually dead. 
That means that you can go to church all you want to and as often as you want to and you can pray all the prayers you want to pray and you can bow all your knees as many times as you wish, but you will not, you will not connect to God. Because you're spiritually dead. There's nothing that connects you with Him. And what He comes along and does is He makes us alive in Christ. Christ died on the cross for our sin, and when we fall before Him and confess that we were born sinners, confess that we our lives, you know, they replicate that kind of lifestyle. We do what we do selfishly and self-centeredly, and we are a sinner at heart. Let me show you another verse. There's a Bible verse that says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I've used that verse for years, um, erroneously. I used to say that I'm 29 years of age, because I think I am. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I'm 29, because I think I am, right? Well, that's the way the world logic sits, but that's not really what it says. What the verse is saying, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is it. It's this, and listen carefully. It's what you think about the most and most frequently that tells you who you are. Are you a person who thinks mostly about uh, fleshly oriented things, the things you know to satisfy your needs or desires or your flesh? Is that what you think about most often? If it is, you're a fleshly person. And the Bible says that's not what Christians are. Christians are, they are led by the Spirit. They're indwelt by the Spirit. They're controlled by the Spirit. That's That's not what you'd call fleshly. It means these people have died to self and died to the flesh and they're not interested in those things as a priority in their life. Their minds are not dwelling on that all the time. What do you think about all the time? What's the thing that occupies the most of your thought life tells you who you are? As a man thinketh in his heart, that's the man. That's what he is. So now let me ask you question number two. Do you think a lot about God? Do you think about meeting him? Do you think about dying and facing him? Do you think about uh, ways that you could honor him in your life? Do you think about how you could serve him? Do you think about uh, what you're going to tell him when you bow in prayer the next time? Do you think about spiritual things? Does it occupy a high priority in your thought life? Because your thought life tells you who you really are. So let me ask you a question. Based on Bible question, Bible statement, who are you? If you died right where you sit, would you go to heaven? Based on what occupies your thought life. What's the big deal in your thinking? Is it have a spiritual ramification to it? Or is it totally a fleshly oriented thought life? So the Bible holds us accountable to say... uh, be careful what you think about. The Bible talks about keep your mind stayed on the eve. What's the verse in Jeremiah? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3 Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And the truth about that, the word stayed means anchored in. It says All that 
don't know what you call it, I guess, storms would be a good word. All the storminess about so much of our life takes place because our minds are not anchored or stayed upon the Lord. If you have trouble with day-to-day function of life and, and things just constantly bombard you and trouble you and burden you, i got news for you. Your mind's not stayed on the Lord. And it may be that you just stay on the Lord. That is, you sort of anchor on the Lord when you've got a major crisis comes about. And boy, you get concerned and you get spiritual and you get religious all of a sudden. Let me tell you, that won't count. This is what happens on a continuous basis. As a man thinketh in his heart, it's a continuous word. It doesn't mean just once in a while. As a man continues to think, this is the character of his life. He thinks on the things of the Lord. He reads the Word, and that's the reason for reading them, is to think on what the Lord is saying, and think on what the Bible is teaching us about the Lord, and causing me to reflect upon, am I living up to what the Scriptures are holding me accountable for? There are several verses, and I'll uh, just use this passage, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll close. Look, if you would, at uh, Romans chapter 3. You're in chapter Four. Look over to chapter 3 and uh, look down to verse number 19. He is not only creator, he's not only sustainer, but he is a savior. In verse number 19 of chapter 3, by the um, passage before this in uh, chapter 3 gives you a list of what people really are before they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every Christian ought to be familiar with verses 9 through 18, because these really give a God-ordained description of lost mankind. And then when it comes to verse 19, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, and that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Here is a verdict that has been ordered by God, and there is no defense in it. When the people stand before God, if you do not trust Christ as your Savior, and then the day comes when you stand before Him, this verse of Scripture is saying you won't even get to open your mouth because it's already a done deal. There's no defense. Every mouth will be stopped. There'll be nobody talking when God stands behind His throne and you're brought there. And he, he won't be asking you, why should I let you in my heaven? That won't be the question that the pagans and the liberals want us to think of. That won't be the case. Whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. No defense, no explanation, no uh, discussion, no request for a lawyer. It just simply says, your mouth will be stopped. But verse number 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified before God. That is, in his sight. Let me ask you, how and on what basis do you think you're going to get to go to heaven? What's the basis by which you think you'll get to go to heaven? Ask yourself the question and give yourself the answer. And if it doesn't match up with what the Bible says, 
And the Bible says it very clearly. The just shall live by faith. And by faith we are justified. This verse says, if you're thinking in terms of what you've done, for instance, if you've been baptized, congratulations on getting wet. But that won't save you. If you uh, give to the church, congratulations, you'll be looked at as an appreciative person. But that won't save you. If you say, but hey, I pray three or four times a day, I, I do all kinds, I do confession, I do all kinds of stuff. Congratulations. But that won't get you to heaven. None of the stuff you can do is going to take the place of what Christ has done. And it's not going to be a trade-off. It's not going to be, well, I'll sort of fill in the gaps where Christ may have not covered the bases. Oh, let me assure you, when Christ died on the cross, he died for all the sin. And there's nothing left for you to do. He paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it all away. It's already a done deal. And he does not need, nor does he want, you trying to do something that he will get somehow give you extended merit for. It ain't going to work. Salvation is in the Lord and of the Lord. And he does not take anything from a human being to translate into a reason why you ought to get into heaven. Here's the only basis by which you get into heaven. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a covering of our sin through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. The simple fact is, a person is saved by grace through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not anywhere does it include any works on your part. And you'll forgive me, but that's an insult to God to suggest that you have to do something to get to heaven. Jesus Christ did the whole thing because just like And I would ask you, if you think you have to do something to get to heaven, then I would ask you this question. What did you do in the work of creation? Anybody here want to stand and give a braggadocious testimony of what you've done to help God create the world? Oh, if you don't want to do that, then maybe you could stand and tell us uh, how you have been helping God sustain the universe. My point is this. Did you help creation? No. Did you help in sustaining creation? No. Then do you think you have a prayer to help God with his salvation? Did uh, But yet churches teach that. Oh, they teach a whole lot of stuff you need to do. And if you do all this stuff, you get to go to heaven. But if you ask them, how much did you to help God in creation? Nothing. How did you help him sustain the universe? No, didn't do that either. There's one more, and I should cover it, but I'll wait till the next time to cover it. There's one more thing. It's not only he's creator, and it's not only that he's sustainer, it is also that he's savior, but there's one more. 
And I'll assure you, you don't get to help in that either. It's just simply this way. Our world has been twisted to make people feel better about themselves if they can do something to contribute to their own salvation. So we get every kind of thing told to us. And some of them, people come to the church and say, well, here's what I was told, and here's what I was taught, and here's what our church explained. And we have to give them the bad news. But that's not true. This Bible is the final authority concerning getting to heaven. And the revelation that God has given of us of his Son and the mission for which Christ came to this earth is set forth very clearly. And it doesn't take a genius to understand it. It just takes the Holy Spirit indwelling a believer and asking for the Holy Spirit to lead and direct and understanding the truth of it. And it can change your life. Listen carefully. Don't you ever depend upon some teaching that runs contrary to what the Bible says as being your hope of getting into heaven. Because you and I did not do anything to help God in creation. We did not do anything to help him sustain it. And I'll guarantee you, you're not going to do anything to help him save you. Not a thing. Best thing you could do to fall on your face and say to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you save me for your own sake. And he'd be glad to do it. He wants to do it. He'd be happy to do it. Because that satisfies him. That's why he sent his son. He didn't need to, he didn't have to give his son, and he didn't have to save any of us. But that's the mercifulness of God. He cares. And I believe the Bible is very clear. He doesn't want any, you know, he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He didn't prepare hell for people like us. Matthew wrote it very clearly. Hell is a prepared place for the devil and his angels. And it will be prepared for anybody who is an enemy. It's interesting that the Bible would describe that enemy as anybody who will try to make a road to heaven that does not incorporate the Lord Jesus Christ dying for man's sins and man trusting the work of Christ and Christ alone for his salvation. Everybody who tries to go a different road and pick up baptism or uh, association with church or all the other stuff that the world teaches, there would be classified as an enemy of the cross. Paul dealt with them in two or three epistles. Enemies of the cross. That means anybody who twists the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ's death and what it benefits is an enemy of the cross. I hope you're not one. I hope you're going and understanding that the way of the cross leads home, not some other way. Not your way. Not the works of some church. We'll get you there. And I'd hope you'd know it now before you get to a point where you can't make up your own mind. Be sure that you're trusting Jesus Christ in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his present ministry being seated at the right hand of the Father. Make sure you've trusted Christ in Christ alone for your salvation. I hope you will. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these motivations to worship. And indeed they are that. They are encouragements for us to understand who you are and uh, what you've done and uh, what you're doing and recognize it very straightforwardly that uh, we need to worship you out of a response of all that you do. And I pray tonight that you would uh, 
take us as we close this service, if we close it without any music, I hope, Father, that we'll take to heart these things that your word has set before us. And I pray that if there's a person, man, woman, boy, or girl, or combinations of such here in this building, I pray that we would uh, simply bow our hearts as we would our knees, and we would fall before you confess that we've never trusted Christ as our Savior because we've been working hard to be a Christian. And what's amazing about it is the Bible is crystal clear that Christians are not made. They're born. And born again is the only way to be one. They have to be born from above, as John 3 says. So I pray tonight, if there's a man, woman, boy, or girl in this building who's never been born again, and yet they're trying to make their way to heaven by what they do, I pray you'll bring great Holy Spirit conviction on their heart and help them to see that Jesus Christ has done all the heavy lifting. He's done everything that's necessary and needful. All he wants from any of us is for us to bow our hearts as we bow our knee confess that we were a sinner, we were born that way, and recognize we'll die that way apart from his grace and his mercy to save us. God, be merciful to save those in this church who may fall into that category. Blessed believers, help us, Father, to fully understand the goodness and the grace of God that's demonstrated both in his creation, his sustaining work, and his saving work. Help us to be grateful. Help us to be humble so that we can worship you when we come to a service, recognizing who you are and what you have done. And I pray, Father, you'll use this to motivate us to uh, worship freely and fully, not just some fakery, but something that really just draws out of us to sing louder and to sing sincerely. Though we may not be able to carry a a tune in a bucket, we can make a joyful noise unto the Lord who's done all these wonderful works. May the New Life Baptist Church be a worshiping church, a truly biblical worshiping church. And may we glorify you even as we go out of a worship service. May there be something of which we'll take with us to our homes. And may it help us all to be more like thee in every aspect of our life. Thank you for your great grace when you've loved us, the great mercy you've shown toward us. Now help us to be faithful witnesses for you as we enter into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.